Father, you are our provider, protector. You care for us. As we already seen today, you give us hope. We ask, Lord, that our time today would lead to just that, hope for your people, anticipation for your people, encouragement to your people. Help us submit ourselves under your word today so that we can see not our agenda, but your agenda. So we can see not our direction, but your direction for us. Help us to see from your word what you would have for us today in the book of Galatians. Build us up, Lord, we ask. We say this in Jesus' name. Amen. A unified front is necessary in all arenas of cooperation. Whenever two or more people are coordinating together towards a desired end or a desired goal, hear this, unity and like-mindedness is imperative. It's urgent. It's desperate that unity happens in that situation. Consider three quick examples relating to this from sports, the workplace, and marriage. Your baseball or softball team is down by one late in the game. The previous batter just hit a triple, stands on third, and there's one out. So coach calls a sacrifice bunt. But instead of listening to the direction of the coach, the player decides to pull back the bat and take a hack at it, line driving right to the pitcher, and instead of moving that runner home, there's a bang-bang play, two outs, the third the player on third is, is caught off the base, end of the inning. What happened? The player and coach were clearly not on the same page there. Either the coach did not give clear direction enough, or there was direct insubordination, and the player just ignored the coach's direction there. Or your boss initiates a new plan to cut overtime hours, to increase productivity and ensure that the employees keep their jobs during budget cut season. The direction was given to the employees. The emails and memos were drafted and communicated. And after a month of work, the team was still over in their hours. And the company then decides to cut three employees. The plan was clearly not implemented. Direction was not followed, and there were consequences. They weren't on the same page. Or the child comes to his or her mother and asks, can I stay up another half hour and watch a show? She replies, it's bedtime, so let's get you settled up and into your room for bedtime. The child replies, but dad... 
said it was okay. How many of you have been there? Or worse, the kids ask one parent and get an answer that they don't particularly like. Then they go on to discreetly ask the same question to the other parent so that they might get the answer that they want. You see, a unified front is necessary in all areas of cooperation. The team has to be on the same page. The company must be moving forward towards the same shared goals. And the home has to be led by parents that are together in both plan and method in running that home. Put a wedge of disunity or distrust and get them all going in different directions. And the team, company, and household crumble. And that is exactly what this passage is about today. So turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2. Verses 1 to 10. And we will see that Paul is led by God back to Jerusalem after being away for quite some time for gospel ministry. Because Paul realizes that in light of these false teachers we've been seeing, the Judaizers who were disrupting churches with their false doctrine and false gospel... Paul realized that he must pursue unity among the other apostles so that they can unite together as a team against the insidious cancer of the false teachers and their false gospel. Hear this, Christianity as we know it today, that we enjoy today, would not have continued the way we've seen it today, without meetings like this. Without clarifying and unifying discussions among the leaders of the church. Either all of the apostles, I want you to see the urgency here, are going to be unified together and to recognize the same signs of the third base coach, so to speak. Or the same rules of the organization. Or the same message to the kids. Or Christianity was going to fail and the false gospel was going to prevail. Let's see what happened when Paul and the Jerusalem apostles are seen, and point number one, comparing gospel notes. Look with me in your Bibles at Galatians chapter 2 now. In verses 1 through 3. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, set before them what? The gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Now, where do I start here in explaining all of this? Because there's a lot going on in these first few verses of chapter 2. And after we just saw last week Paul's conversion testimony, 
and then his initial ministry, Paul continues here now in his biographical testimony to discuss more of what happened in the past to affirm that his gospel was the true gospel against the false teaching of the Judaizers and their false gospel and their false claims and gossip against him. He's continuing to defend himself, continuing to tell us like it is. And as we saw last week, remember, Paul got his gospel message directly from Jesus Christ. No one else gave it to him, as those false teachers tried to claim. Who gave it to him? Jesus gave it directly to Paul. So back to our chronology here, because there's a lot going on. And and hang in with me here, because it's important for us to catch Paul's argument, to see the connections, see what's going on. I want you to feel and hear the urgency, not only to see his argument against the false teachers, which is what he's doing, but also really his pastoral care for the churches of Galatia, that they would see the truth. He wants them to see it. Because remember, they doubted Paul because of these bad teachers, believing the false teachers instead of him. Remember, Paul said, oh, foolish Galatians, I can't believe you so quickly deserted my gospel that I preached to you originally, and you've gone on to another gospel. That's the situation that he's dealing with in these churches. They've abandoned ship. They've gone to a false gospel. They have been duped. And Paul here was graciously and patiently clarifying against these false, gossiping Judaizers. And I want you to see here, Paul was not too proud to give a defense, was he? Too much was at stake. And he cared about these people's eternal destinies. On that note, sometimes we have to patiently bear with people and their sinful confusion and mistakes and sinful agendas in order to get through to them. Do you see Paul doing that here? Do you see how we can likewise put aside our conveniences and our annoyances for the sake of what? The good of others. We see this in the Apostle Paul's heart. Take that to heart yourselves as well. So back to our chronology. Last week, we saw Paul was miraculously converted on the Damascus road. And then he says he went up to Arabia and Damascus preaching the gospel. And it wasn't for three years then, after his conversion, that he met with Peter and James in Jerusalem. But remember, it was only a short trip, a few weeks. So certainly Paul didn't get his gospel from them. Remember, he got it from God, this is his argument. This is what he's defending against. Then Paul continued on for 11 years after that in Syria and Cilicia, preaching the gospel to the Gentiles as God had called him to do. He had a mission. He had a calling, and he was doing it. He was fulfilling it. And people were praising God because of this terrorist Paul and his miraculous conversion, faithful testimony, Man, what a testimony, and we saw all that last week. Now, we just read in chapter 2, after a combined 14 years since his conversion, 
and likely about 11 years, over a decade, after his last short little visit to Jerusalem, he came back now to Jerusalem for a second time because of a revelation of God compelling him. We just saw that in the reading of our text. God wanted Paul to go back to Jerusalem for some business. This likely corresponds with the business of the famine relief visit described in Acts chapter 11. And this whole ordeal is quite miraculous, so I want us to see it. I want us to get caught up in this narrative, in this truth, in the Apostle Paul's life, so we can be encouraged by what what God is doing and what Paul is communicating to the churches of Galatia here. Let's see it in context. Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 11 and verse 19. Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. Remember that one? (laughs) Who was responsible for part of that persecution? Paul, right? He gave the go-ahead for the murder of Stephen. Church was scattered, we see here. Because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews, verse 20, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Get this, verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them, And a great number who had believed turned to the Lord. God was working in the preaching of the gospel. People were getting saved. People were turning to the Lord after the scattering because of persecution that the Apostle Paul himself was a part of. Amazing. Do you see it? Are you following? Verse 22. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And what did they do? They sent Barnabas to Antioch. Remember Barnabas? His name, we just read about Barnabas and Paul and Titus going together in Galatians 2. You see the connections here. This is an important character here in our passage, in our sermon. When he came, when Barnabas came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. Aren't you glad when you see the grace of God? And he, Barnabas, exhorted them all to remain faithful in the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man. And wasn't Barnabas an encourager just like his name indicates? He was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. May that encourage you to be an encouragement to others. A good man or woman in the Lord. Spurring others on in their ministry. Praise God for Barnabas. But let's see what Barnabas does next in verse 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul now. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. Now, Antioch and Barnabas are there in Antioch. I mean, Paul and Barnabas. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. Now, they got their priorities straight, don't they? And in Antioch, the disciples were first called what? Christians, there's a little help, helpful nugget. That's when they began calling, be, be called Christians. Verse 27, now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Okay, that's where Paul and Barnabas are, verse 28. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over the world. This took 
place in the days of Claudius. Verse 29. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability. That's all the Christians, right? According to their ability to do what? To send relief to the brothers living in Judea. Now that is gospel-centered giving, isn't it? Motivated by the gospel because of a prophecy that there's going to be a famine, things are going to get bad. They pool their money and they want to help those in Judea. And it says in verse 30, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of who? Who, who? who takes it to Jerusalem? By the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Do you see the sovereign hand of God through a prophet that sent Paul and Barnabas back to Jerusalem to give financial help to a famine that had not yet happened? Because God was giving direction. What an amazing reality that we're seeing here in the Bible. I think, and there are debates about this, I think that this visit corresponds with what we see here in Galatians chapter 2. Paul was there in Jerusalem with Barnabas to give a contribution taken up by the Christians in Antioch. The churches in Antioch, the disciples in Antioch, to give graciously and generously to the Christians where? In Jerusalem. Now, this financial gift for the struggling Christians in Jerusalem will come up later in our sermon. So take note of this financial gift. But Paul, sent by God, you see here, through Revelation, maybe his own, maybe also in light of Agabus' vision, of the great famine, maybe both of them, but either way, Barnabas and Paul are going back to Jerusalem, sent by who? Sent by the sovereign hand of God. This is an amazing trip. God's providence is the only thing that explains it. And it's on the visit of dropping off the cash, so to speak, to help out for this upcoming famine. It's here that Paul compares his gospel notes so to speak, with the Jerusalem apostles' gospel notes. He, he compares the gospels. He compares what they're preaching and what they're believing. You see, this is a private meeting, it says in the text. It's an unofficial meeting, which is one of the reasons I don't think that this passage corresponds uh, to the Jerusalem council in Acts 15, which was a very public Meeting. Some people see the parallel in Acts 15 and the Jerusalem Council, but it seems that it would be Acts 11 here that this private meeting occurred in, in Paul and Barnabas going to give a financial help to the churches in Jerusalem. And in this private meeting, in addition to dropping off the funds to help the Jerusalem church, Paul also did what? He shared his gospel with the Jerusalem leaders to make sure that they were all on the same page, speaking the same language, taking the same notes, with the same gospel notes and the same gospel implications, that they're all together. So here's the scene that we have here that we're seeing in Galatians. A private meeting with some influential Jerusalem apostles and other church leaders and Paul and Barnabas and also this other character that is mentioned. Who is that? Titus. You saw that as well? That's who's there also. We already saw Barnabas here. We know who that is, this Jewish encouraging believer who's now working with Paul. But Titus, you see, was not Jewish, but he was a Gentile. And he was likely converted under the Apostle Paul's ministry. So this Gentile, this Greek, 
who's not Jewish gets saved. Titus, as you know, will later, this is all way earlier, but later Titus will be influential and instrumental in helping establish churches where? On the island of Crete. As Paul tells Titus, uh, call pastors and, and elders oversee the churches in Crete that do not have pastors yet. You see, Titus was an important character later on that we'll see, but right now he was relatively unknown. He was a believer and he wasn't Jewish. Titus, of course, because he wasn't Jewish, he wasn't circumcised because he was a Greek. You see, Jewish men, as we know in the Old Testament, are circumcised for religious reasons, right? It's, it's clear that was part of Israel. They would be circumcised. But Greeks, you see, they just were not. That wasn't part of their upbringing or their religious practice. We, we all know that connection between Jewish people and non-Jewish Gentiles, right? But notice that Paul brings along Titus here as a kind of test case of sorts to prove the like-mindedness of him and Barnabas as well as the Jerusalem apostles. Let's see it again from verse 3. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though, look, he was a Greek. Meaning, though he wasn't circumcised. Paul says he wasn't forced So Paul and Barnabas compared gospel notes with the other Jerusalem apostles. And and while the Judaizers were saying that new converts to Christianity had to, must come under the Old Testament law and get circumcised once they were saved. That's what they were saying. But is that true? Paul said requiring circumcision was adding to the gospel, adding things to it, adding works to it. So he brings Titus, this Greek, who was a believer in Christ, who trusted Jesus alone for his salvation. He was saved. He was so clearly saved, and there was evidence of that, and they all knew it. And Paul's gospel here would say what to that situation about Titus? What would it say? It would say, no way that he needs to get circumcised because that's adding to the gospel. He's not under law, but under grace now, guys. And here's the great news For Christianity, as we know it, Paul's gospel was the same as the Jerusalem apostles' gospel who walked and talked with Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry. How do I know that? They were like-minded. How do I know that? Because they were just on the same page. They had the same notes, getting the same signs from Coach Jesus and ready to believe and teach the same gospel. Even the influential apostles that the false teachers kept comparing with Paul kept challenging Paul, even they were like, look, Titus is a Christian. Yeah, he's a Greek, he's uncircumcised, but he's a believer, and now believers don't need to be circumcised. He doesn't have to be circumcised. They all agreed with this test case of Titus. This is such good news. For if they wavered even a little bit, church, and if they had somehow kind of sided with the false teachers or a little kind of soft-pedaled a little bit, like, whoa, 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 Paul, pump the brakes a little bit, Paul. If they did that, the gospel would be at stake, I hope you can see. But they all shared the same convictions. Praise God that they did because opposition was coming against them. It was. It was there. 
And if we are not united as Christians here in this church, we will not stand up against opposition. A united front is so important. And they needed it. They needed it to be sure. If they needed it, we need it here at First Baptist Church of Gallatin as well. We all need to agree on the gospel. (laughs) Now our debates today are certainly not likely going to be over circumcision like it was then, but they will be other, over other important truths that come against the gospel. People add to the gospel all the time, don't they? For instance, some cults and religions teach that you must be baptized in their specific church to be saved, for example. And that this act of baptism actually saves a person. This is an addition to the gospel of grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is no gospel. We see other types of examples that we will see later in other sermons in this series, but for now, let's move on to the opposition that I mentioned just now that was coming in this situation specifically. And please know that the final two points here are going to be much shorter than the first because... We laid a lot of background and foundation that's going to just carry us on through the rest of the sermon. So let's see, number two, point number two, standing up to legalists from our text. Look with me in your Bibles to Galatians 2 and verses 4 and 5. What does it say? Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Here's where this private meeting in Jerusalem gets really, really interesting. Paul, Barnabas, and Titus and the influential Jerusalem apostles all got together to have a little powwow of sorts to find out where they all stood on these controversial issues. Should they teach obedience to the Old Testament food laws, for instance? Or should they require circumcision? Or should they expect the Gentiles to observe the law? Where were they all at as it related to the gospel? But we see here that there there were secret spies who showed up to crash the members' meeting or the business meeting, so to speak, here as they got together. These false brothers slipped in, the passage says, as spies to what? Snoop out like a secret agent, 007 or Jason Bourne, only these guys were really, really bad spies. They had really bad motives to what? Crash this private meeting. Look, Paul was just there to drop off some helpful and gracious funds and then to get on the same page with the Jerusalem apostles. They were all on the same page, speaking the same gospel language together. We see that. Agreeing that Titus can be left alone and not subjugated to circumcision like the believers of the old covenant would have been because they're in a new situation now. They're like, we've moved on from that requirement now. And the Gentiles are grafted in and don't have to be 
and have to go through that gruesome procedure as adult converts anymore once they're saved. Because why? They are not under law. (laughs) Thank God that that's no longer the, the requirement because things have changed now that Jesus has come. But these false brothers, I hope you can see, notice, he calls them false brothers. People can look and act like Christians, talk like Christians, say that they are Christians, even say that they believe the gospel, throw that word out a lot, but be faker and false brothers and sisters and not even true Christians at all, not saved at all, though they say it, though they're in the church. We've seen this a lot the last few years, haven't we? From our series in 1 John to Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. It's all over the Bible. But we must be aware of this category within even our churches and church meetings and realize that it's possible for unbelievers to sneak in, to, to creep in like spies. But let me be clear here, not everyone you disagree with is a false brother or sister. We're not talking about just if you disagree. No, we're talking about those who depart from the good news of of the gospel by adding on other things to the gospel of grace through faith. Tom Schreiner, in his excellent commentary, put it like this. Hear what he has to say in clarity. Those who desired to impose the law, according to Paul, were not merely mistaken on a minor matter. Requiring observance of the law changes salvation from being a work of God to what? To a work accomplished by human beings. So this issue is all about who gets the glory in salvation as we saw last week even. If someone can think that they can keep a set of laws to get right with God, they simply do not know the gospel, do they? That is what Paul is protecting against. He's protecting against a false gospel. Notice, we must thank Paul and the other apostles and the leaders for standing up against these sneaky, oh-so-sneaky Legalists. For the text says that they were spying out their freedom in Christ so that they can bring them under what? Bondage of slavery back under the law. That was their intention. I don't know about you, but I don't prefer slavery. I like freedom. I would never wish slavery upon anyone. Why in the world? Would anyone want to go back to a condition of bondage that they were freed from prior? That's Paul's point here. And Paul's going to keep making this point throughout the letter of Galatians. As Dr. Schreiner put it, freedom here means freedom from the law. More specifically, bondage exists when circumcision and law are required for salvation. (laughs) So bondage is when People listen to those false Judaizers and say, we need to add circumcision and obedience to the law to be saved. That's slavery. That's bondage. Don't go towards that. You're free. And Paul and the apostles, you know, they didn't budge even one inch, did they? The passage says. 
They didn't budge for Titus's sake there. Could you imagine if, if everybody had one over and they're like, Titus, now you have to be circumcised? Not only would that be a, a tough thing for Titus, but then that would also be adding to the gospel. But they didn't budge for his sake. They didn't budge for the sake of the churches of Galatia so that they could all know what the true gospel was as opposed to the false gospel. And they didn't budge for you and me, dear Christian. We benefit from this today because we know the true gospel because they took a stand. Praise God that they took a stand. For if they did give in here, that would have launched an endless array of additions to the gospel and bondage and slavery to religious practices that supposedly will make us right before God. And it would have lost the true gospel. Today we can look back at this and say, no, 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 no. We're not going to add any of that to the gospel of grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. No, we're going to stick to the original gospel. We're not going to add anything to it. Uh, How do we know that? Well, in Galatians, they worked that all out. They stood up to the false teachers and they gave us a way forward. It was unthinkable for them to abandon the gospel. They defended the gospel. They preserved the gospel for us by being bold defenders of the faith. We need more bold defenders of the faith here in this church. We need more bold defenders of the faith in our day and age. How many of you know things that are coming up against the gospel today that are trying to change the gospel, trying to to add a little bit of hints of other things to the gospel? How many of you know about those things? We need to be bold defenders of the gospel like them. And I want you to thank God now in your hearts, in your seat, for the boldness of Men like Paul and Barnabas and Titus and the Jerusalem apostles apostles who stood up to these bullies that very important day in that meeting. We are here worshiping God because the gospel was preserved because of them. Thank God for them. This leads us now to our final point. And number three, united in gospel ministry. See with me in your Bibles, verses 6 and 10 of chapter 2. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who works through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. Verse 9. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. United in gospel ministry. This is where the unified ministry among the Christian leaders who were ministering in different contexts and areas of the world to different audiences, this is where that unity comes together. This is where they are one as a team and like-minded. We see here that Paul's ministry, it was vindicated against the false teaching Judaizers, wasn't it? They said he twisted the gospel. But this clear account shows otherwise. They said his is different than the Jerusalem apostles, but this account says otherwise. They said the big wig apostles in Jerusalem who were so influential 
to them as the false teaching Judaizers, they were name dropping those apostles. They're like, hey, Paul doesn't have the right gospel. They do. They say something different. They were name dropping and claiming those Jerusalem apostles were on their side, the false teacher's side. But you see, even the disciples and apostles who were co-workers with Jesus Christ himself during his earthly ministry, very influential, even they were able to pinpoint Paul as the true gospel preacher who had the exact same gospel that they did and those false teachers as twisting the gospel. And that Paul was called by the same exact God. Peter called to the Jews, as it says. Paul called to what? The Gentiles. Both called by the same God. What unity there is seen in that. What a blessing. You can see here in the language that Paul wasn't so impressed with the reputations of these Jerusalem apostles, was he? A point that will become painfully obvious next week when we see Paul even confronting one of them. This is a little highlight for next week. And just in case the language, though, of Paul here seems a little snarky, you know, when he says those who seem influential throughout this whole entire section and everything like that, I think John Stott helpfully clarifies what's going on here. He says, Paul's words are neither a denial of nor a mark of disrespect for their apostolic authority. He knew that they were apostles, right? He is simply indicating that although he accepts their office as apostles, he is not overawed by their person as it was being inflated by the Judaizers. Does that that make sense to explain the language he's using here? I thought that was helpful when I saw that, and I wanted to share that with you. He's not being sarcastic and snarky here, but he's like, hey, they're apostles and so am I. But we're all under the same gospel message, and we all must preach that faithfully. No exception, as we'll see next week. No exceptions. It's the gospel that's first. Sure, we're apostles. We're together. Some people say they're really influential. Okay, okay, okay. We're all preaching the same gospel, so let's get on preaching that gospel is his point notice here again how like-minded and on the same page that they all were united around the gospel mission of the church see it again and galatians 2 and verses 9 and 10 it says this and when james and cephas and john who seemed to be pillars perceived the grace of god the grace that was given to me they real they, they gave the right hand of fellowship to barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Look at how encouraging this is, church. They saw the grace of God in each other's lives and ministries. They were not nitpicking each other, even though they certainly had different ministries. They were so different, but they weren't nitpicking each other, but encouraging one another. They didn't envy each other's ministries and places and people that God called them to do because they knew that God called them to specific places and ministries and they were behind that calling of God. They weren't criticizing each other's every single step. Well, well, Paul, you do this this way in the Gentile context and, 
and Paul's like, oh, well, you do this wrong this way in the Jewish context. No, they were seeing the grace of God in each other's ministry and pointing it out and praising God for it. What a model for us. And they not only saw the grace of God in each other's lives, they also embraced each other's ministry. And and the Jerusalem apostles who were... uh, uh, the Judaizers, as they were claiming, right, not, not the uh, apostles, but the Judaizers were claiming they preached a different message than Paul. No, they, they came together and said, we affirm together the same gospel, one and the same gospel. There are not two gospels, there are not more than one gospel, there are the same gospels, and we are preaching the gospel together in unity. They are one around the gospel. What a blessing that is. And they each agreed that they would preach the same gospel to different audiences and they affirmed and encouraged each other's ministry. Unified together in gospel ministry. And by the way, they mentioned, but as you go to preach to the Gentiles in that context, don't forget the ministry to the poor or the poor Christians even in Jerusalem or the poor uh, throughout the world. Don't forget that kind of ministry, they say. (laughs) But as we saw earlier, as we looked at the background, Paul's very reason for this visit was for that kind of ministry, right? So he's already bought in to that vision of caring in that way. He's like, yeah, earth to the apostles. That's exactly why I'm here and I'm eager to do that, evidenced by my trip from Antioch to Jerusalem to give financial relief. Do you see that that is the exact thing that he cared to do? Isn't this whole thing, this whole example, a model for our church and churches all over the world as Christians. Believers banding together side by side for the sake of the gospel work and the gospel unity and gospel care. This is a model for us here at First Baptist Church. We need to be together for the gospel message and mission. And we need to encourage one another in life and ministry. We need to come together against the opponents of the gospel because they are coming, church. They may even come from within as false brothers and sisters sneaking into our midst as we saw in this church meeting here in Galatians chapter 2. We need to be united in this to band against them because if we don't have a united front and if we're not submitting to the same calls and directions from God and if we're not going in the same direction as a church, if we are not giving the same unified gospel answers to each other and our surrounding community, speaking with the same voice, with the same notes, there will be division here in our church. There will be chaos. And there will be much damage done. But if we are united in ministry together, like Paul and the other apostles were, The gospel will be preached. People will be saved and built up and sanctified. And God will be glorified in our church. Let's pray to God towards that end right now. Father, we ask, O Lord, and thank you for this model and example of unity that you have given us in this early church. Thank you for the boldness of the men who stood up to falsehood. Thank you for the unity that is seen in the gospel. Help us to display that unity here at our church, God. Help us with all the opposition to stand side by side, shoulder 
to shoulder with other believers all on the same page for the same gospel to glorify our great and same Lord. We ask for your help in these things because we can't do it on our own. We say this in Christ's name. Amen.